Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and although we're facing a wait of some months before the Formula One season finally gets up and running, when it does get started, those watching will have access to more analysis and insight than ever, be it on television broadcasts and videos, websites, podcasts, whatever. Many of those you'll hear from will have some kind of racing pedigree, but how does that influence what they have to offer? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to delve into this topic are Corinne Chandock and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Scott, first up, how are you enjoying the relative freedom of Sweden? You're not you're not in a full lockdown there, unlike most of the rest of us, are you? No, and depending on who you ask, this is a massively controversial topic. <laughs> um, I'm I obviously I'm I'm happy that uh, I'm allowed to go outside, but I'll be honest with you, been been pretty busy with stuff, and it's actually been kind of like business as normal here because you spend most of the time indoors working, and then trips outside are sort of fairly few and far between so I'd like to get to the point where I could take advantage of it more but to be honest with you I think if I was I'd probably feel a little bit uncomfortable with it you see and hear all sorts of stories about people being stuck uh, not being able to see friends and family and stuff like that and I happen to live somewhere where you're pretty much allowed to to do what you want and that makes me it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable I'm not gonna lie now, Karun, hello. Uh, you're one of the world's leading motorsport superfans, I think it's, it's fair to say. So how, how are you getting a competitive fix, given you're uh, housebound for all but the 58 minutes, uh, as you said on Twitter t- today, you were able to roam around outside? Well, Ed, like you, I'm a big cricket fan, um, and I've caught up on loads of different things that have been recorded on my Skybox over the summer. Um, I watched the replay of the last two hours of the Headingley Test, with uh, with Ben Stokes' amazing performance yesterday. Um, I saw The Edge, which is a documentary, I think, on Yeah, that's uh, very good. Yeah, I watched that one. It's very yeah, good. Yeah. Um, and I also saw The Test. Have you seen that? It's an eight-part documentary on the Australian cricket team. Uh, very, very good show. So, yeah, I've been watching lots of cricket to keep me, keep me entertained and then uh, chasing my 15-month-old around who's just started taking his first steps. So, yeah, it's pretty flat out at the moment. I, I presume is he showing any signs of cricketing ability? That's that, that's what you should be uh, training him up for. No, can't rely on the cricket, motor racing genes. C- cricket, table tennis, anything that's going to be cheaper for dad, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking actually, maybe, maybe you will have some motor racing talent because uh, sometimes that sort of thing skips a generation, doesn't it? And of course, your dad was quite an accomplished racing driver. Oh, shut up! He was. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it started already. Well, uh, there's going to be plenty more opportunity to. Uh, hurl such a abuse at you but uh taking a serious approach to this topic i mean Karine, you're by a country mile the most accomplished racing driver anywhere near this podcast raced in f1 competed at le mans you've won races in gp2 huge amount of experience i remember martin brundle uh, one of your sky colleagues saying that once that his racing career was almost preparation for his commentary career do you, do you almost feel the same about that kind of thing No, my case is a bit different, Ed, because I actually started doing the television stuff in parallel to my racing career. Um, You know, I think people in the UK have only recently seen me on Channel 4 on Sky, but actually the first race I commentated on was the 2004 Chinese Grand Prix uh, when I was still racing in Formula 3. Um, You know, I was was, um, only 20 years old at the time. And um, yeah, I was doing the commentary for, for Star Sports in Asia and then... Uh, you know, so over the years, I've, I've dipped in and out of doing various bits of commentary. So Sky is actually the fifth different major broadcaster I've worked with on F1. So, yeah, I think I think my case was slightly different to Martin's. Um, but it's it certainly it doesn't hurt having a, a racing background. I think it gives you a well, that's, I'm sure that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. And just while we're establishing your credentials, do you know what position you spent the most time in in your Formula One career during races? No, but I'm sure you're about to tell me. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't first. You'd be surprised to know it was 20th, which, to be honest, given the cars you were driving, wasn't too bad. 
Yeah, there were 24 on the grid and we probably had the 23rd and 24th slowest car. So I outperformed my car. Actually, I, I was as part of my spring lockdown cleaning, I found an autosport review written by Ed Straw in 2010 calling me the best out of the four HRT drivers who drove that year, including uh, Bruno Senna, Sakon Yomoto and Christian Klein, which was... Um, it, it, it completely shocked me. You know, you paying a compliment is shocking. Well, the thing is, I'm now going to have to uh, get on the phone and apologise to Bruno Senna and Christian Clean at the very least uh, for uh, for making that claim. But uh, yeah, I was younger and made mistakes then, obviously. But uh, uh, but yeah, uh, before we kind of delve into it, Scott, you may as well declare your racing pedigree. I mean, it's nothing compared to uh, uh, to Caroon's, but you you know you you are someone who has raced a reasonable amount. Yeah, I think. I think um... I find it difficult in other sports because sometimes you do see sort of absolute first rate athletes that then become second rate pundits because they just slot into something. They, they, they can work quite lazily. Uh, obviously he's on this podcast because uh, Karun absolutely does not fit that, that category. I like to think I went the opposite direction. I was a fourth or fifth rate racing driver and I'm up into the upper echelons of being a second or third rate journalist. So I've definitely progressed from a from a driving ability to a to a journalist ability point of view, but yeah, I did uh, I did a lot of karting when I was a kid. I started when I was eight or nine, uh, raced up to sort of national level karting, British Championships when I was fifteen, sixteen, and I've done a tiny amount of, of car racing, just sort of on the job, um, Ginettas, Renault Clios, Honda Civics, that sort of thing. But never, I would never ever profess to being a a lost talent even though I'm having a moderate around a modest amount of joy at the moment in the world of club level esports shall we say <laughs> <laughs> well esports is, a, is is the thing at the moment it's all, it's all anyone can do just to throw in my credentials I was formerly a fat amateur uh, club racing driver and uh, yeah that was very much uh, a kind of the, the equivalent of being a pub footballer I would say and I was uh, I was I was perfectly adequate but uh, yeah and probably uh, more enthusiastic than I was uh, able but yeah thoroughly enjoyed it it was uh, it was uh, a good fun to do it although i haven't done it for a few years because obviously time and uh, money makes that that difficult but Karun, coming back to the topic obviously you're the uh, <laughs> the most accomplished by a by a long way here do you think that that the grounding you've had the extent of it the fact that you were sort of a professional racing driver with, i guess you probably argue still are um although i imagine you're uh, the amount of, of racing jobs over the past few years uh, means you're not so much from it but yeah still still uh in your prime as it were but do you feel that has equipped you better for being a pundit and journalist commentator obviously you've done all these things i think so i think there's there's no question about it that if you've if you've lived the situations that you're commentating on or commenting on or writing on i think it gives you a much better perspective you know and that's that's the same of any sport of course um but then there's that that's not the be all of it or end all of it, because as, to Scott's point, you know, you've got some, you've had some fantastic um, racing drivers or cricketers or, or you know, athletes in, in pure athletics who haven't been able to be good communicators. And, you know, I think the ability to read the race or to tell the story or to, to, to think about what people at home will find interesting versus what someone in a garage may find interesting is two totally different things. Yeah, and ultimately, we have to think about the people in the living room. They're the ones who who are the end consumer of this uh, of this information we're putting out there. Uh, but I think you know, I, 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 it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I'll never pretend to be a top Formula One racing driver. However, as you mentioned before, I have raced for twenty odd years across various different categories. Um, and I've been on the Formula One grid and I've won races in GP2 and that's given me enough, you know, not for one moment do I sit there pretending to be a Lewis Hamilton that was lost. But I, I, I've experienced what it's like to change tyres, to go from a, a used set of hards to a, to a brand new set of options or to go from a used set of options on a new set of hards or, or what different fuel weights feel like or what a setup change feels like or what a, a change in the wind conditions feel like. Um, I think also driving on on the circuits that you're commentating on makes a huge difference. You know, you you know immediately that when you get to Silverstone and when the wind's going in a certain way, which corners you need to watch out for, for potential errors. Um, I think that there are so many nuances in our sport and 
I think arguably motor racing and Formula One is the most complex and complicated sport on the planet. There are so many layers upon layers, isn't there? There's, you know, the, the business side of it. There's, a, there's the, the technical side. There's the human side. And, and I think if you've lived it as a driver, then you're in a much better position to talk about it. I would say probably you also have an advantage over some. I mean, Scott mentioned sometimes you get sports people who then go into uh, kind of commentary or or something in that area and maybe just rely on their historical knowledge. But you're also still very engaged in it as well and kind of a, an active participant. Obviously, you've got other activities you're participating in, involving. But you know, motorsport is your life. You're not just kind of a, a retired driver who happens to to drop in sometimes that's not to denigrate any of those who aren't doing quite the same thing but sometimes in a lot of sports you do see what you might call the lazy uh the lazy sort of punditry analysis from former competitors versus the the good ones there's a, there's a difference isn't there yeah that's right i mean you know i think you mentioned at the top i am a, a formula one super fan and and that's it, it's an absolute fact you know ever since i was a kid formula one has been my life and and therefore even today I, I want to learn more about it. I want to read up about it. I want to talk to the team bosses and the engineers and the mechanics and the people at the factory and, you know, not just the drivers to learn about what's going on out there. Uh, and I think, you know, the more you can research and, and the better you can prepare yourself before going on to a live broadcast, the more beneficial it is. And, you know, I've been very lucky to work with people and, and see people like Martin Brundle and David Coulthard and, you know, guys who are who are just the epitome of professionalism as far as drivers turn broadcasters and it's 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 um you know it's great to be able to have the opportunity to see that Karun, when you work with uh, in an environment like sky uh compared to say what a, a radio broadcaster or uh, one of the broadcasters that only does highlights for example so you're if you're part of a team that has to be really really in depth to justify the 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 investment that sky has made in, in covering formula one do you find that that kind of environment brings out the the best in you from a sort of analyst point of view because you're you're having to throw yourself into things I guess a bit more in detail than you would if you're following it maybe a little bit more detached or from afar or do you think you would still you be exactly as involved regardless of what your sort of role would be or how regular you were on TV or part of the coverage? I think there is an element of you know if if you are covering let's say the majority of the races you know I was meant to do 18 this year, the same as I did last year, then you've got to be in it. Uh, you know, you two go to, I think, all of the races, if not pretty much, uh, I think, how many, how many do you go to all two, all 22, both of you? Uh, I think I missed one last year just to yeah. pace myself a bit. And yes, Scott, I think you did. I, I, th- I missed, I think I missed two or three. Right. So, you know, if you, even if you miss one race, there's always bits of gossip or miss bits of news that have happened in the paddock which you haven't been able to see on television, isn't it? And and that's why, I mean, I think ultimately, look, 22 races is is a hard season to do for anybody and especially for people like myself who are doing other projects and other work outside of, of the sky work, then um, it makes it even trickier. So I don't think I'll ever do 22. But I think missing two in a row will make it very difficult for you to be up to speed on what's happening. So, uh, and, and to your question, to come back to your original question, uh, Scott, don't forget when I worked with Channel 4, we did half and half. We did half the races live and half the races as highlights, but we treated them all the same. You know, we still went out there on a Thursday and spoke to the people in the paddock. We still went out there to um, engage with people between the sessions and try and learn and understand whether it was a highlights or a, or a, or a live weekend. So I think that that's your job as a professional, you know, to be well informed. Well, that's what I quite like to see amongst the the different kinds of broadcasters that are up there are. One of my uh, one of my I, th- I think it's quite a common sight on a Grand Prix weekend it will be Ben Edwards will turn up in a Thursday media session that one of the drivers has or the team bosses has, and you know that's he he he's coming from a point of view where he 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 isn't doing all of the all of the the races live, but it's about making sure that that level of uh, that level of quality in the broadcast remains high just because it isn't all of the races live and I, I i really really respect the the people who work in from a broadcast point of view or a written point of view those who don't rest on their laurels if if you've been around for a long time or because you've done something to a certain level if when people 
don't take that for granted. I think that's where the, the fan gets the absolute most value out of them. Well, I'll tell you what, it, everyone's got different ways of, of approaching it, right? When you, know, you, you talk about someone like Ben, you should see Ben's notes for every weekend. It's amazing how many notes he writes before even a free practice session. Um, you know, and, and, and likewise for drivers, you know, we, we all go out there, we have different ways of, of getting information and trying to understand what's going on. But for many years with um, Channel 4, I worked with Mark Wilkin, who worked with Murray Walker and James Hunt back in the, the BBC days. And Mark had some amazing stories of, of James, you know, showing up. I think the, my, there was one in Monaco, I think he mentioned, where he said James walked into the commentary box as the cars were coming out of the tunnel on the, on the parade lap before the race. And he walked in with a bottle of rosé in his hand, no slippers, no T-shirt, just uh, a pair of shorts. And as he sat down, Mark took the bottle of rosé out of his hand and stuck a bottle of water into him, and, and, and away they went. But James had been out with people from Marlborough. You know, he'd been out with Senna. He'd been out with um, uh, Ron Dennis and people involved with McLaren. And he knew stuff that nobody else did in the television or broadcasting world. The fact that he had a few glasses of wine <laughs> along the way as part of his conversations was his way of socializing to get the news and info and gossip, you know. And um, I mean, there's that famous story, isn't it, where I think, Ed, you might know this, but I think it was Budapest 92, the race that Mansell won the World Championship. James announced during the Grand Prix that Senna had offered to drive for free with uh, for Williams the following year. And, you know, that was Nigel's big day and, and somehow James managed to, to steal his thunder because he'd found out from from people at Marlboro and McLaren that this was what was happening. So I think, you know, every every driver turned broadcaster has got their contacts and their way of doing things. The getting massively on it strategy is one that Ed employs on a regular basis at Grand Prix weekends. He's constantly turning up just before session starts, absolutely off his head, having had a mad one the night before. Anyone who's met Ed will know that. I may have had as one as as much as one glass of wine over the course of last year. You never know, um, but uh, but yes, it's kind of doing an Eddie Jordan in the modern day, isn't it? He uh, he throws a few of those uh, those grenades in, and some of them are very uh, are very well uh, very well founded. But yeah, everyone has different things. I think it's a it's a little bit more. It's a slightly more professional environment, shall we say? If you look at how Sky works, it's such a well-oiled machine. And I've been able to see you guys at work in the commentary box, and you've got so, so many of you both in the commentary box and down in the pit lane, etc. It's uh, it's it's a very very uh, military operation. It's slightly simpler, I guess, uh, but back in the day. But but it's interesting because I, I guess for for us, Scott, because we are kind of outsiders. Yeah, we've done some racing at a very low amateur level we're kind of almost third parties to it. So you can kind of take a broader view. You speak to a lot of drivers, you learn a lot of things. And I think the, I don't think the experience of having done a little bit of amateur racing is essential by any means, because there's some, some great commentators and pundits and writers and everyone who, who have not done that. But it, the thing for me, I think it most has, has given me is an appreciation of how good, you know, for example, the top guys in formula one, if you go into a club championship, like a third tier club championship, the best drivers in that will be very good. And then, but compared to an F1 driver, they're, they're nothing, you know, the top, even, even the worst F1 driver on the grid at the moment is a phenomenally able driver operating in these sort of tiny windows. And I think it's, it's probably helped me a little bit to understand just how remarkably good even kind of a decent top level professional racing driver is, let alone the absolute great ones. The ability to, and it's the ability to replicate it, I think, just to, every lap be kind of at that 100% to adjust what your percentage level is according to the circumstances to think about all the other things it's hugely impressive yeah I, I always I always find that my my limited experience um, even uh, even at what I thought at the time was quite a high level of of karting and the sort of pressures and the uh, the detail that went into to, to finding hundreds and tenths of a second there it makes me realise that it's given me an appreciation of sort of what you say about like how good everything is, but also just what it takes from a driver's point of view or a team's point of view to, to actually drill down into the bits that matter. Because I I would um, 
I wouldn't characterize myself as someone who can watch uh, a car trackside and immediately sort of discern the car's body language, shall we say, or exactly what the driver's doing. I'm gonna, I, I will, if I, I can do that, but I need a bit more time to, to, to fully comprehend it. If I'm watching a driver's onboard, for example, I feel like I do have a better feeling of exactly what that sort of input is doing, or I can, I identify an area where that I think that driver might be making the difference because while I haven't done it to that level or in that environment I have been behind the wheel and you know especially in in karting where you have such small differences uh, have quite a big impact in the end I can sort of identify stuff now what I can't do I can't come close to doing is looking at someone like Verstappen or Lewis and I can be massively wowed by the fact they've just done 15 laps within a tenth and a half in total across the range, but I could never look at their onboard and tell you that that's why they're quicker than another driver. And I think it goes back to your underlying point. All, what it's done for me is I feel like I have a massive, massive appreciation and respect for the finer details now. When someone's capable of doing something a tenth faster than anybody else, I don't think that looks particularly spectacular on paper to the to the sort of, shall we say, the general fan who might tune in because it doesn't really mean much in isolation, but I look at that and just think, how the hell have you done that? And I just I honestly filled with respect and awe of what the top F1 drivers are capable of. I think that's particularly important when it comes to, say, something like modern Formula One, when if you watch an onboard now, it does to people look like the cars are on rails, but they're not. They're, you know, they're, they may not be moving around. As it's not, Ronnie Peterson at Woodcut is always the thing that everyone has in mind, isn't it, in the... In, in the Lotus, but the cars are moving around. It's just harder to see. So I guess for Ukraine in particular, trying to translate that so that people are correctly wowed by something that just from a superficial look at it can look quite simple and look, not even look so different when things are normal to driving your car down down to the shops, which is one of the few things you're allowed to do uh, <laughs> these days. Yeah, but, but, big, but big challenge. But sometimes, Ed, you have to you have to tell it like it is, and and and. Using your example, the cars are more on rails than they used to be because they've got more downforce. They've they've got bigger tires, uh, and they're heavier. They're much heavier. I mean, I, you know, you watch a lap from Michael Schumacher in in the '96 or the '97 Ferrari or even the Benetton before that, and it looks like he's hustling it. You watch a Senna lap from '91 even, uh, and you just think. Wow, that that looks like an accident waiting to happen at every corner, and and we don't have that anymore. And sometimes you have to tell it like it is. You know, we can't always defend the sport or defend things that uh, or the direction that the sport has gone. I think that's part of our responsibility is to to have opinions. Um, you know, is to to give our personal views, and and that's one of my personal views is that I think the cars need to be more difficult to drive. Well, that's an interesting, interesting point. I mean, well, you drove, you drove last year's Mercedes, uh, one of the few people to have uh, to have driven it. But you know, that car, there's still the way I always look at it is there's still kind of movement within it. It's just much, much smaller, isn't it? It's a much narrower window. You've kind of got to keep everything in. So it, it's almost like there's similar things going on, but it's a bit more exaggerated and a more compliant car from. 20 30 years ago should we say and although the physical demands probably are, well certainly of that era are greater than they are now you can argue formula one car drivers currently are kind of overtrained almost in terms of uh, of their, their overall fitness levels you could argue um but it's it's still there isn't it you know it's it's not when you're sat in that 2019 mercedes turning into stowe or whatever at silverstone where you drove the car it's still it doesn't it probably doesn't feel 100 percent planted does it no, of course not. I mean, look, race cars. Race cars are always a balancing act of grip versus speed, isn't it? You're always trying to find the where that cliff is, uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're driving a a Can-Am McLaren on Goodwood on crossfly tires or a, or a 2019 Mercedes with uh, with a ton of downforce. So, uh, I, I think yes, you, you are right in that, and and I, I suppose one of my added benefits as a as a broadcaster. Um, and, and writer is the fact that I've been able to drive cars across every decade of Formula One. Basically, um, you know, I think I drove a I drove a 1952 Cooper Bristol, but I think technically it was an F2 car back then. Um, but since then, I've driven Formula One cars from every decade. So it it's given me a, a quite an you know all round perspective on on the evolution of the sport as much as 
at, at the you know a pure pure driving experience should we say from my own driving career it's actually given me a chance to think about what what it was like for Keki Rosberg or Nigel Mansell or people like that in in their days so would you say it's easier in that regard because I always sort of think it's just as difficult, but different set of parameters, should we say? But but is it actually easier physically just to get in, a, or just in general to get in a current car and get down to a, an okay time? Yeah, I I think so. I, I think that it is because we've got so much grip and so much downforce. It is easier than it was perhaps in the early nineties uh, or even in the early two thousands. You know, I think if you look at the the sort of two thousand three four five era with the with the v10s and the sticky tires you know it was a very very tricky time the cars were were dancing around they still had the grooves on the tires of course um they didn't have anywhere as much downforce as they have now but the horsepower wasn't far away you know they were well up into the mid 900s in terms of horsepower with significantly less downforce than we have and you know it's no surprise that the lap records from 2004 stayed for a very long time didn't they at most most circuits really so um and i think though look the cream will always rise you know if lewis hamilton was driving in any era of formula one he will be at the sharp end he will be there winning races winning world championships um and and the same for a max verstappen or a charles leclerc you know i still believe the cream will always rise but the difference between those absolute a-list stars and let's say the next rung down who are the very good drivers, but not necessarily the greats, will be smaller today than it would have been, I believe, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. No, that's, and in fact, the history will bear you out. You'll see, you know, nowadays a three-tenths gap in qualifying is is considered pretty big, whereas you go back further, there's points where it's sort of one second plus. Was it 92 Silverstone when Patrese was... 1.9 seconds. Yeah, yeah. 1.9 seconds down on Mansell. He was still on the front row of the grid, but because uh, he didn't get on top of the active car in the same way Mansell did, there was that uh, there was that huge gap. But but Scott, when you sort of look at that, it, it's this interesting challenge, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's that the gaps are bigger, but therefore, does that mean it's almost even harder to be a, a top line driver these days? Because that you're dealing in such tiny margins, and to be Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen, you can't rely on being two percent better than anyone. You're, you're dealing in, in sort of fractions of a percent in different aspects. Yeah, and I think that's what's. But I think that's what's frustrating when you watch F1 and you know that there are only a couple of cars that are really able to to challenge on a given weekend and what was that was what was good about the second half of last year was um ferrari through uh whatever kind of means you you deem them to have used second half of the season became more in the fight and Red Bull got their act together as well and, and that was more interesting for me because you then got to see visually for the first time in in a few years in formula one exactly where the driver can make the difference if you go back to say what what was the last one probably 2012 wasn't it It was the last time we saw two different teams in in the mix um and 10 was probably the last time it was a proper multi-team fight to to the end of the year so you just don't see it enough and Actually, what we got in the second half of last year was a bit more of a visual example of that, whether that was in, in qualifying or whether it was you know drivers making the mistakes. The good, the, one of the best ones for me was in Germany, uh, which obviously was absolute chaos and everyone was all over the place. I spoke to, I had a sit-down chat with, with Verstappen on the Thursday of Hungary after that and spoke to him about it. And he said it was, he's adamant it wasn't a, a coincidence that Bottas put it in the wall properly in a big way and Lewis just got away with it. Just like when Lewis went off at the final corner, Lewis didn't nose it into the wall. He broke the front wing on on, on the barrier, but then managed to, to get back out. And when Max had his own spin, it was a 360 degree spin. And you you can't you can't see that and it's it's difficult to explain why even examples of drivers doing things badly are a good example of how drivers can still do things better than others. But you just basically don't in normal conditions in Formula One, especially when there's only one team in front, you just don't really get to see that differentiation between between drivers so much. And that that is one of the that has been one of the the biggest shames. But it, it is possible. It's just it's just hard to do. 
But as a just coming back to the original point about the driver term broadcaster picking up on things, when I go watch trackside, um, which I don't often get to do anymore, but for example, circuits like Singapore or Interlagos, where you can get really up close to it, it's it's interesting how and and I always try and drag some non-drivers along with me, you know, whether it's it's fellow presenters or it's you know people who work in the gallery behind the camera stuff just to come and watch the track, uh, watch the cars on track. And Ed, you and I go out and in preseason testing, um, and we have done for the past few years. But you know, you're able to see things. I, I, you know, I guess my eye is tuned into knowing this is how I would turn the steering wheel for this particular corner, and therefore, you know, you you pick up on people who are doing it that way or people who are turning the wheel a different way or people who, who are transferring the weight on the brakes in a, in a slightly different way. And and, I, and it's, I, I'm often surprised how when you go out to watch um, with another driver, someone like Damon, for example, you know, we're immediately, we'll watch, we'll see something on track, we'll look at each other and we'll know what we've both seen. You know, you've picked up that thing and you almost have to explain it then to the third person who's a non-driver and I think that's quite a critical difference when you're watching trackside between someone who's driven and someone who hasn't. Going trackside is one of the one of the biggest sort of learning experiences I've had on the on the job. I just find it I find it so valuable, especially if you can watch it with someone who who just has a bit more of an idea of the nuances. It's I've I've done it less in in Formula One because I've been needed. I need to be basically in the media center during sessions to to, to write stuff. But back when I covered Formula E. I don't think there's a better championship on the planet for you to be able to go and watch trackside for because you can literally go and stand on top of the cars, basically. I remember the first time I properly got trackside was Punta del Este, Formula E. And I was basically standing next to the marshal at the uh, at one of the chicanes. So I, And the chicanes being what they were, for Karun, you'll, you'll remember from, from Formula E, that basically just meant they came up to my knees as they went past. And I remember being out there with... Uh, with, with Jim Wright, who was uh, with, I think he would have been with Venturi at the time because he hadn't gone across to Mahindra by then. And he came over to me because he was up watching on, at the, on the bank and he came down to me and asked sort of what I was doing. And I said, oh, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm basically just trying to be less of an idiot and actually understand these cars a little bit better on track. And he sort of stood with me and said, okay, well, you know, I'm out doing the same thing because even though he was the commercial boss, he was out there with like a stopwatch and looking out for, for bits and bobs. And I, I I managed to get a little bit of input from different people through Formula E going trackside because everyone's basically doing the same thing, taking advantage of it. And it's just, it's it's so valuable because it's all well and good sort of seeing the occasional uh, camera angles and sitting on board with uh, with drivers for 30 or 40 seconds. But even if you get only 15 or 20 minutes of just sustained trackside time, you actually pick up more on the, the, the behavior of the car and sort of learn a little bit more about what the driver's doing, what they're struggling with, that sort of thing. And it actually, it makes it a bit more real and you can just understand it a little bit better. One of the things I find is because I, I watch trackside a lot and, you know, I'm, I'm reasonable with it, but the thing that's probably the most difficult that a driver like Karun or his colleagues will do is sometimes I might notice I'll I'll notice something a characteristic or something that's happening but sometimes it's difficult to disconnect that from the cause and whether that's the primary thing that's causing this to happen and that's why quite often I'll compare notes to Karun and sometimes you'll say oh yeah but in that this is happening the, the driver's doing that and you think oh okay I get that and then you can see it so sometimes it's kind of connecting up those bits of information but that also is as a as a kind of journalist rather than a, a driver that's also kind of our job isn't it you you ask people things you speak to people and you try and piece together all the information i imagine probably a driver just from watching trackside a one with a good eye will will immediately gather more from that but then sort of my job is to bring together all the strands and try and build a a wider picture often just by asking people i I like asking drivers i'll say well in this corner you appear to be doing that it appeared to be this is that the case and sometimes i say yeah it's exactly that sometimes i'll say oh yeah actually it's this was what was causing that and you kind of build up the picture that way yeah, but I think Ed, you're you're in a minority there, where you know you're you're still having been in the sport for so long and written for 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 so many years and so many races, you're still willing to come out and ask ask questions. Um, you know, and and I think the good journalists do that. You know, whether it's uh, your colleague Mark Hughes or Andrew Benson, pe- you know, people who have been around Formula for so long, we still 
compare notes, you know, you're still willing to admit that there's so much more that you don't know. Uh, whereas I, I, I'm always amused by, you know, I, I think especially in the last two or three years, we've had this huge influx of of the journalists who come along with from websites and blogs and things that you've not even heard of. And all of a sudden they're telling you uh, or telling, you know, people like myself who, who've actually driven the cars um, where we're right and where we're wrong. And, and rather than, uh, you know, there's already having done, I don't know, a dozen races, there's already this belief that, that they know more than Marty Brundle does. It's it's a very um, it's it's a very difficult thing because there's so many factors at play when you're trying to understand why things are happening. It's one of the reasons why I like well, I like watching the cars is because that's the kind of manifestation of everything. There's lots of data and information going on there that can kind of point you in in directions, and it's it's kind of like building up a big jigsaw puzzle, I guess. The the whole thing that's the, the aspect of the challenge I like to try and get to a point where you understand it, but usually. You, you look at something, you'll get one piece of data that will give you an answer to one question and it'll create three other questions. So you're sort of constantly running around just like, oh, why is this? Why is that happening? That doesn't quite reconcile with that. It's it's really, it's challenging, but fun. But if you take it from the point of view that, uh, let's say, a, an accomplished racing driver who's going into a, to a media role needs to respect the nuances of the new discipline and put in effort and not just coast on their ability or success or whatever they've done in their previous life. From a journalist's point of view, if you're then trying to enter the racing driver's world, going trackside or or trying to apply real-world experiences to it, you need to have a massive, massive level of... Uh, you basically just need to be really humble about the the arena that you're trying to become involved in and, and and not get above your station and that's the problem i think it sort of ties in with what karun said before you 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 can't just think well you know i i'm here and, and i know what i've seen and it's exactly the same what i've seen has to be has to be the case and therefore that becomes becomes fact i think all if if i go if i go trackside or if i if i dare to have a conversation with a formula 1 driver about how i think they might be driving or what i've seen from their car it will only ever be to ask them a question about it and actually use it to inform as you said ed the the job that you're doing because that's that's all you can do and you see it drivers respond differently to that like max verstappen really doesn't like it when you go to him and say your car's doing this because he hates that he will respond as he did in testing with, oh, are you out there driving the car? But if you ask him, you say, how does this work? Or I think I saw this. Or when this is happening, what are you doing? That's Max at his best because he's willing to actually explain it because he appreciates the honesty of the question. I think one of the the other benefits is when, you've, when you're driving, you you go after a session into a debrief and you're sitting there and you're trying to download this information to the engineers of what the car's doing. So, and in that aspect, you're first talking about driver comfort and, and reliability sort of things. You know, do you hear any strange sounds? Did you hear, did you feel any misshifts in the gearbox? Did you, any of those sort of things? Then you're going through the performance things of, you know, braking performance, aero balance, and you're going through every part of the car. Um, and, and and therefore you you're really thinking of everything, including wind direction and weather conditions and and all these sort of things, as well as your competitors. And and when you translate that into broadcasting, automatically your mind switches into that. You know, I'm watching pictures on television, and I'm already thinking, well, actually, you know, that that headrest doesn't look particularly comfortable for him, or you know, this you're already going into that driver mode of thinking of every aspect of what you're seeing and trying to trying to read where the interesting bits are to broadcast and, and which are not. You know, ultimately, I think we're filters, right? If you wanted to, you could watch one lap and you could talk about that lap for hours. You know, you could break it down as long as you wanted to. But ultimately, you're trying to filter what's interesting for people at home and what's irrelevant. It's interesting as well, because sometimes when you ask drivers, say, specific things about what they're doing with driving, you learn a bit about the driver. Sometimes there's ones who just aren't willing to give you any detail because they don't want to, which is fine. Sometimes you get ones that will give you a very detailed breakdown. You know, sometimes, you, if you're lucky, you'll get, you might ask a specific question about a corner and they'll break it down into, you know, some corners you can break down into so many different phases. Uh, the more complicated ones could have sort of six, seven, eight stages almost. Sometimes there's drivers who you just know haven't really got that understanding. 
um, of exa- they can't go back to something and sort of say, oh yeah, well, and you sort of think, I bet you're a nightmare in the debriefs because you're not, you're not, you don't really know exactly how you're doing it or what's happening. And so, and that's not bad drivers. That can be seriously quick people. Often it's the ones who are seriously quick sometimes, but the, the saying people always use is they're quick, they're quick, but they don't understand why, which is sometimes what you see in drivers who are up and down. But I think what, one of the one of the most interesting things about the team we've got now at Sky is you've got such a variety of racing drivers who are all very analytical in their in their own ways, uh, and some more than others. You know, it's when you've got people like Jensen and Anthony um, and Damon and Martin. You know, the years of of driving experience collectively that we've all got together and you could bounce off each other you can you know we because you, you could put your ego aside and say i've watched this lap i d- i can't really understand why it's not quick it looks good and this and, that. and then we'll actually often sit there in the office and put it up and, and watch it together and try and pick up things and um you know i think that's that's one of the benefits of if you work with a a broadcasting team with more than one driver on on the lineup you can all feed off each other and bounce off each other yeah very very much so and it's some that does sometimes come across in the broadcast i don't always see the broadcast i remember was it maybe in spain last year i think it, while while watching the race i probably had the sky commentary on on my uh on my, on my ipad and i think it was probably you paul Deresta, and anthony davidson were all doing various analytical parts within the race or, or qualifying whatever wasn't it i just thought it worked really well because obviously and you had crofty doing the lead comms and martin alongside him but then you had this kind of little brains trust doing slightly different focus focal points but just really digging into things really well i just thought that was so well done that's where sky really kind of benefits from having so many and then you've got you know other expert views you know people like damon hill johnny herbert jensen button um in the uh it giving their analysis one other aspect that's interesting is when you get specific incidents that happen on track let's say a collision will be the, the classic one and they'll obviously sky will do in-depth analysis of all the clashes or there may be a controversy like Canada last year with the uh, the penalty and the rejoining etc which was analysed I, I do feel sometimes that's an area where drivers are very very well placed to give a good understanding because they've been in that situation they understand what's happened they can easily pick out what's a legitimate mistake what's just being an idiot at what point it's really started to to go wrong and i think it's easy for i think again there are some there are non-drivers that can do that as well but i just think in general the hit rate for drivers is better in terms of understanding what's legitimate what's not legitimate because you've been in races leaning on each other and you know when it's kind of on the edge and like you're being hard and you know when it just goes too far yeah i 100 percent agree you know and i think that's why when you look up and down the paddock um from the people who are either broadcasting or writing you know i think even even mark hughes has done a bit of Formula Vauxhall Junior Racing, did he back in the day? He's a quick driver, um, Mark. Yeah, did uh, Tuskins. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a yeah a, a quick racing. You know, guy. I think I think ben, you know Ben Edwards has obviously done a lot of racing in the past. He's a Formula first, it, Formula first champion back in the Formula day. Formula first champion, but still racing now in historic Formula Ford. He's you know out and about. So um, I think there's there's a huge benefit in in what you've just said when it comes to incidents. You know, you've you've been there. You 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 know you've been in the cockpit thinking. Uh, shall I have a lunge? And you sort of have this half-hearted attempt and it doesn't come off, you end up in a collision. You can put yourself in that position, in the mind of the driver who's made that decision or the one who's been taken out or, you know, if there's a 50-50. You know, Canada last year was a classic example, wasn't it? I mean, um, in in a way, I was slightly flattered that Ferrari thought my analysis of it was was good enough to take to the stewards' room afterwards. But on the flip side, it was why France was my weekend off, so I was not looking forward to the flurry of texts of abuse that arrived on my phone and, and all the trolls that kicked off afterwards. But well, were you, were you, de- it, it, were you, not, you were deemed not admissible, weren't you? <laughs> well, of course, it was not admissible. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, there was, there was no way that was going to work. But anyway, the the point being. You know, we watched it, and, I, and actually, I, I watched it together with Jensen. I think it, I'm pretty sure it's still online. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere on the Sky F1 channel. But Jensen and I, you know, broke it down and try and analyze the incident as much as possible. And we still came out of it in every way, thinking he shouldn't have been penalized. And you know, I've had long discussions after that with um, the stewards and uh, the driver stewards and and Michael Massey, and various people who. Uh, who've disagreed with me, um, but you know that's one of those situations where you just have to agree to disagree. 
I, I find those sort of uh, those sort of incidents really interesting because, as a general rule, I agree that you you do bow to 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 racing drivers or past drivers that have been in that experience. But I think there have been one or two occasions where I won't name names because it would be, it would be a bit unfair, but there are one or two occasions where I think drivers can sort of get, be a little bit too stubborn with the, yeah, but I've been there and done it. So I, I know, I know that I know what, what's going on. And it's like, we not, don't doubt that, you know, that experience is really, really valuable when it comes to placing what might be going through a driver's head. But sometimes I quite, like being able to look at it from a completely neutral point of view or a, 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 a maybe a shall we say a more neutral point of view because it's slightly easier to consider the sort of the other side of the argument shall we say so Canada was a good example because I remember speaking to you on the Monday afterwards Karun because I was I was flat out on the other side of of the argument I felt that I felt that 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 once you're you're off track like that you've basically got a duty to not rejoin in a way that could cause a massive problem and I felt that, that Seb had done but once I once I spoke to you and actually it's also quite useful having Ed as a sounding board for stuff like this we we had an example this week with with something else where you basically end up in a position where if you find someone sensible that has an opposing point of view with you um, you can then sort of migrate naturally towards a, a more middle ground and once I'd actually spoken to you about it and and properly had it sort of explained to me from a driver's perspective that did shift my position I'm not saying it completely changed my mind but if you consider that when we started that conversation I was at the complete opposite end of the spectrum and then by the time we'd finished I was probably halfway towards your point of view if not a little bit more so there, there is genuine value in that because I'm someone who looked at that incident analyzed it quite a lot in my own way came to my own conclusion which wasn't just a snap judgment was quite considered and then after speaking to a proper racing driver um i i, I changed my opinion further if you see what i mean it, i th- think it's to me that was just a good example of the value of having that kind of racing driver input yeah and i think it it's down to trying to take on board different viewpoints isn't it because we all have kind of a, a default initial reaction should we say and, it, and the way the human mind works, it's very easy to get into confirmation bias and your kind of snap reaction will often be the one you then find ways to prove. And it, it is actually, you have to consciously kind of get out of that that thing. It's, it's actually hard for us to do uh, cognitively. You have to be aware of your biases to do your level best to try and counterbalance them and be open to, to different situations. So it, it is tricky. And you do sometimes see that with incidents when I do feel sometimes incidents, not always, but sometimes they get decided by who's involved with in them, should we say. Sometimes if you have a big-name driver and a, and a lesser driver, just the lesser driver automatically gets uh, gets named. Um, Hamilton and Kobayashi at Spa in 2011, for example, there were some people trying to blame uh, Kobayashi for that because obviously he was just the guy in the Sauber. Hamilton was the world champ, former world champion in the McLaren, but unfortunately it was, it was Lewis's fault. His inattentiveness ultimately uh, led to it. Um, he's, uh, he's cut those sorts of errors out of his game for a good few years now, but I felt a lot of people just automatically assumed because of the state as a driver. It's like if there's an accident involving Pastor Maldonado and anyone else. Okay, usually it has been Pastor Maldonado's fault, but it won't always be. Sometimes well, you can have a very... Sh- sh- Think of when Schumacher came back in the Mercedes days, and he had the you know the incident with Senna in Barcelona. Then he had a, the shunt in Singapore, didn't he? With a was it a Toro Rosso or with Perez or something? And you know, and and it, the immediate reaction was to blame anyone but Michael Schumacher. Actually, um, you know, from from a lot of fans around the world. Do, do you one thing I wanted to ask you? Do you ever get? trouble from should we say you know if we consider other drivers they're kind of your equals some of the guys on the f1 grid you've you've raced against so you're kind of you're more of a you're a peer to that to, to some of them whereas me and scott are outsiders ultimately we're journalists whereas you've got a peer-to-peer relationship do you ever do you ever get objections like that, that someone might say to you oh you said this about what i was doing what are you talking about do you ever get do you ever get uh, any feedback from uh, from people you know for stuff you've uh, you, you've read a certain way yeah, yeah, you you do actually. You know, it's it's surprising how much um, drivers and you know pay attention to what people are saying about them. And, and I was guilty of it as well. I think when, especially when you're in that, um, especially on the ladder to F one, it's such a high pressure environment. You know, you're clinging onto every word that uh, and hoping for a good word said. Um, you know, when you're a GP two or in Formula One, for example. So um, I think. 
you know, I've had the old conversation, but I think the difference is if you're a if you're a former driver, or as you say, a peer, and and I've been lucky to you know raced alongside several of these drivers, but also I know a lot of them from when they were younger. You know, I met Charles when he was in his first year of single seaters, and um, you know, no other drivers, George Russell when he was straight out of karting, or people like that. Um, and, and I think. I think that makes a difference. You know, you have a history and you're able to have a driver to driver conversation and a debate about it. Um, and, and I think they're perhaps a little bit more willing to back down on their, on their opinion than they would with, with one of you guys. I, I think um, I've had sort of similar with the likes of uh, with Russell and Norris, for shall we say, as an as an example in, in F1, because there are a couple of guys who I've known since they moved into cars. I covered... Uh, George's title win in BRDCF4 season. I remember speaking to Lando in the um, uh, Ginetta Junior paddock at, at Silverstone the year before he moved into to car racing. I was introduced to him um, by the team that was going to run him. Uh, so I spoke to him and his and his manager. Um, and I, so I, I've I've worked with them for should we say let's say let's say six years. And those are pretty much the only two drivers who, who since they've been in F1 if they've got a problem with something that's been written, they actually raise it with me. And I I appreciate that because you, you see that as a two-way relationship because then if I go to them in a media session or sit in one-to-one with them, whether it's on the record or off the record, I do feel like drivers like that, you can ask a question and you can trust that you're being told basically as honest an answer as they're able to give. It, to give. And if you look at the um you know just the the sort of um nonsense you're throwing at Karun at the start of this podcast Ed you know because it's evident to anyone apart from shall we say a few Twitter people on Twitter who don't quite understand the nuances of your relationship when you have a relationship of any kind with a driver the stronger that gets that it it strengthens your ability as long as you don't get too close I think that is always going to inform and help you rather than be a hindrance well, I think yes and no. It also depends on how professionally you can draw the line, right? I mean, for years, Martin commentated on DC when DC was, you know, when he was managing DC, but he was still able to criticize DC during the broadcast, uh, you know, if if he felt he needed to. And and I think, and, and you know, those two, they are thick as thieves even today. Uh, but I think it's about drawing the, the differences where we've all got a job to do and, and you got to respect that. The interesting one sometimes to happen is, um, you know, drivers aren't hanging on my every word, but every now and again you get a little bit of conversation. Sometimes sometimes it will trigger a conversation with them where they're amazed by actually how little information we've got access to because sometimes you'll get told, oh, but that happened in that race because of this. And it's like, well, I asked you about the race after, but I think you didn't say it. The team didn't. So, so how there's sometimes there's factors that you can't possibly know about, and they're almost surprised when you say, "Well, I didn't didn't know that." And then sometimes you have to revise that that uh, that opinion or that uh, judgment of it. I remember a conversation a few years ago with uh, Valtteri Bottas about it, actually, where he was just it wasn't about a specific incident, but he was surprised by almost how little we have to go on because there there isn't you know all the even GPS data that kind of thing, all these these things that that kind of teams take for granted. We don't have general public access to. We do normally get an idea from various people who do, but you're piecing together all these different pieces of information, which is really, really tricky to do. The driver themselves knows everything about their weekend. They know every little thing, every nuance, every detail. Um, but from the but outside, they don't know, but they don't know about their competitors' weekends. Exactly. And, and yeah. that's always interesting because I often have conversations with, you know, drivers that I, I know and are friendly with. And we, and we talk about other people, you know, people like, you know, I, I met Daniel Ricciardo in 2006 when I was racing in Asia um, and, and, you know, I've seen him come through the ranks and and therefore we can have a conversation about, well, what do you think? Yeah, okay, you know, this one looks like a bit of a pig here, a bit of, you know, and you know you're discussing this in confidence. I'm not going to go and tell another team or another driver that Daniel Ricciardo thinks your car looks like a pig on track, you know, and, and I think that's, it's a, it's a conversation between friends as much as, people who respect each other's opinion because equally you know he's trying he's he's in his world and his weekend but he hasn't seen what's happened to other people um and i think that's that that's an important part of being a, a former driver is because you've got a peer-to-peer relationship they you know the the current 20 on the grid 
are are happy to ha- engage with you in a way that they may not do with other people. And I think that's sort of the, the the underlying point I was trying to make before is that you can have you can build these stronger relationships if you haven't been a previous driver and you can get to the point where they respect you in in different ways and they know how much they can and can't sort of trust you with with certain things but it is a lot harder to get anywhere with those kind of relationships and and I think you will always have less of a a barrier to break down shall we say if uh, even if you're not a direct peer as you are Karun with some of the drivers on the grid if you've got you've got fundamentally something in common and I, I see it sometimes you don't necessarily get given that respect you know I, th- I think for example Jolian Palmer does a very good job with with what he does but I also hear a couple of current drivers on the grid every now and again dismissing what he has to say they use his all of a sudden he's not a former driver he's a driver who didn't have any success in in formula one and therefore his opinion doesn't matter so it can still swing both ways even if you're a, fo- a former driver but i just think you you can basically once you've got your foot in the door you can then sort of show them what you're about and it's easier to do that if you've got that that peer-to-peer relationship that Karun talks about and you can appreciate how hard it is for drivers, you know, the amount of scrutiny they're under. If you're driving, you're having a bad run or something, sometimes you can understand why that might get on top of you and you'll see people as, uh, some have, can have the mindset of seeing people as out to get them, etc. Others are better at dividing it, uh, uh, separating it up. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, kind of dynamic. Should we, should we before we finish, having uh, rambled extensively through that topic, let you have your moment in, of glory, Scott? I don't. I don't think. I don't think, Karine, you've participated in one of these. We're, I've made the mistake of allowing Scott to have his own corner of the podcast called Scott's People. That he's had a few, a few incidents of not doing properly recently. So, are, are you back on track yet, Scott? Uh, I will be after this one. I will be. Um, yeah, it's just been. It's the 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 world situation that we're in at the moment is crying out for a bit of ridiculous, stupid light relief. So it's nice that, to be able to get this uh, back on track. So this this for people who maybe not familiar. Uh, to it it's basically started out as this stupid idea to just ask a silly question at the end of the podcast see what the listeners and our audience online has has to say about certain things and then sort of share a few of those responses at the end uh, so we haven't done one for a little while but I'm gonna uh, we're, we're gonna change that because um, one of the things that by the time this podcast comes out you should have been able to read on the race.com as long as you don't forget the hyphen which has been codenamed product project joy at the uh, uh, internally at the race and it's basically in f1 and i would imagine karun your experience of formula one you've got very good uh, understanding of this the biggest stories are often about bad news good news stories they don't really sort of get talked about quite as much because generally if things are working uh, then it's the status quo maintained, right? So um, it's by definition not news. But with where the world is at the moment, I think good news has come to the fore a little bit more. So what we've done with uh, Codename Project Joy on the race.com um, is basically pull together a bunch of good news stories from the last two or three weeks. And that's you know acts of kindness like Mario Isola, the Pirelli F1 boss, carrying on his volunteer ambulance shifts uh, during the coronavirus pandemic or... Uh, people providing assistance like Silverstone giving up the medical centre to the NHS. Uh, so that's available on on uh, therace.com. Um, so what I'm going to ask people this week is basically I want people to contribute to it. I want to I want people to sort of flag up just bit genuine, genuine just bits of, of good news, a racing driver that they've seen get involved in some kind of uh, donation or project or something like that and just sort of just shed a little bit of uh, of goodwill in what's generally a, a pretty rubbish time at the moment. Um, so starting off with that, Ed, do you have, have you, of all of the little things that have cropped up, shall we say, over the last few weeks, has there been anything that's uh, that's jumped out on uh, at you as uh, as quite a nice little thing? I actually quite like the the role some of them have had in the, in amplifying the messaging, shall we say. Like we saw quite soon after Australia, Lewis Hamilton uh, put out something kind of backing up the uh, the lockdown, uh, the social distancing stuff. And I actually think that's really important because there'll be some people who just won't listen to government advice. But someone like Lewis Hamilton has got such a, a devoted fan base, such an influence that actually even something so simple as that can can have a genuine impact. I know that's perhaps not quite what you're looking for, but I think that's an example of the small sort, the small power that some of these people have. Karun, you it looked like you've repurposed what looked to me like a to be a glorified dog toy. The the tennis ball thing on a rope. 
I saw you. Uh, it was a it was a good example of sort of how to keep fit during during isolation. Have you seen any sort of what's the sort of most creative way you've seen sort of some of your driving colleagues or any of your colleagues sort of keeping fit at the moment behind the scenes? Well, I think um, the ultimate one's got to be Valtteri Bottas, isn't it? I saw some posts from him and his girlfriend in Finland, and they, I mean. If you're talking about isolation, that is probably the most extreme I've seen. There was literally looked like there was nothing or nobody around for miles but snow. Um, so I thought that was that was a pretty extreme way. I think Daniel's down in on his farm in Australia. I think staying away from from civilization and most people. So yeah, I think I think it's um, you know everyone's trying to do do what they can, isn't it? Um, most people. Of you know the younger lads have all gone back to their parents' houses rather than their their Monaco one bedroom apartments. So they've got a bit more space to train. Uh, I think that that's important. Um, the one I've been most impressed with is is I think Pierre Gasly seems to have gone into isolation with his trainer, which is a which is a hell of a commitment from both of them. Really, you know, it means that the trainer can st- you know they they effectively have turned themselves into a a, a two unit family, if you like. And the trainer's still there, you know, beasting him and making sure he stays fit. George Russell's trainer is currently living with George, his pa- George's parents, George's sister, and his sister's husband. I think so. That's going to be yeah, quite a cozy maybe, setup. I don't know if he's nicked all of George's t-shirts because all of George's clothes <laughs> seem to be with him without wearing any clothes on. So yeah, exactly. Maybe the train, maybe the trainer's nicked all of them. If, uh, if I tell you, what, I, I I welcome any contributions to Project Joy and, and Scott's people on on Twitter, either to me uh, at s mitchell f one or at We Are the Race. Uh, but I draw the line at topless pictures of George Russell. I don't need. I, I I like George. I've got a lot of respect for him, but he is doing enough of that on social media. I don't want that being thrown my way either. On, on a on a more serious note, I guess the uh, the, the the really good thing to see has been the the technological and the manufacturing. And design resource, the project pit lane thing that the British teams have been doing with the UK government, and we see Mercedes at Bricksworth are manufacturing uh, uh, breathing assistance devices. Um, kind of, they, they they work with oxygen masks to avoid it's having a, to it's put a, on it's a CPAP device. CPAP, yeah, it's exactly. A... I, I didn't want to. I was I was toying with whether to get into it because I'd obviously read about the because uh, it's a continuous positive airway pressure, isn't it? But the um, but it's I just love the fact that you know people ask what's the point of Formula One, but I always say it's great. At doing anything really well is brilliant, and then when you see that that ability to do things really well and quickly applied to a real world challenge with very fast results like this, it's just spectacular. Yeah, two things about that that I learned Ed is um, because I spoke to a couple of the engineers involved from from the teams and and F one. So the the CPAP device, I think, what's really cool is Mercedes have made that open source. So any country on the planet, you know, if you're a, a manufacturer with with capabilities to to produce medical devices and hardware because it, it i think it needs medical grade plastics to to produce it um you can make it you can download the drawings and make it which is which is fantastic you know you save yourself such a lot of time and effort and cost in the design process um the other thing was to highlight your point on you know the next project i think the project pitley are doing are, are the are the full ventilators and i believe it's being worked on um, the basis of their design has has come in coordination with the British military, um, who have been working on a particular design for a for a few years now. And one, as one of the engineers in F one said to me, he says they, you know, the military have been working on this for for a couple of years, and we've just chucked a load of F one engineers at it. And in three weeks' time, we've we've managed to make what was their sort of design model into a, a, a working prototype that's been tested and is is heading for uh, approval by by the medical authorities fairly soon and that just shows you know f1 is used to um problem solving and and, and delivering within a two-week window and that's what they've had to do in this instance but this is the thing that there's there's all sorts of things that, that motorsport can and can be doing and, and is doing at the moment. One of the things that I thought was quite creative, you know, we we give uh, our cousins uh, across the pond in America some sticks sometimes. But uh, one of the things that's been quite cool is that like NASCAR tracks have been repurposed sort of to, to host blood drives and that sort of thing, because obviously you can't 
doing blood drives and uh, is is not exactly the sort of thing you should be doing at the moment it, it's difficult because you can't encourage people to go out into into big groups and stuff like this so you, you put these uh the collection facilities in sort of remote locate remote locations and then you they can still crack on with what is uh, what is obviously a fundamentally very important thing to be doing so i honestly uh, for i feel like uh all of the good the feel good stories at the moment that are around sometimes i feel few and far between but there are a lot out there and they tie in very nicely with uh, scott's people so that's why i thought i'd flag that up this time yeah so if you've uh, seen any more of those uh, message scott on twitter what are you at scott mitchell f1 at S Mitchell F1. Come on, Ed. At S Mitchell F1. This, oh, is well, all, this is almost as bad as my dad regularly forgetting my birthday every year. Yeah, you shouldn't be so forgettable, I guess that's the main thing. But also you can uh, tweet us on uh, at We Are The Race as well. Uh, and we'll uh, maybe go over a few of those in our next podcast. Uh, we'll do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen, as Scott said earlier. Loads of uh, written material on there. There's still quite a lot going on in the world of Formula 1 to, to read about, as well as some uh, special features we're doing, some retro bits and pieces, etc. Uh, do subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. There are plenty of videos being put out there. And try a few of our other podcasts. The Bring Back V10s podcast, which tells classic F1 stories. We've got the uh, the Alan Prost story with Karen Chandock uh, is out. We've just released uh, Hungry 97. Damon Hill's near, near win. There's, there's one on the McLaren MP418, the unraced car from 2003. So we're enjoying that series. We've also got the Gary Anderson F1 show, an eSport podcast. We've got a MotoGP podcast, Formula E. So uh, yeah, plenty to listen to there. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll be back soon with another Race F1 podcast. <laughs>